Thank you for pray, praying for the Arab world. Uh, three weeks from tomorrow, Sandy and I are uh, going to a restricted country in the Arab world, spend four days there to be with people who are planning the church. And uh, thank you for your global hearts. As we come in our continuing series in this second letter to the Corinthians, uh, I want to talk today about that experience we all have of being sized up. In fact, if you're a first-time guest with us today, I'm positive you've been sizing us up here. In fact, I remember my first Sunday at Central years ago. I had to preach in the morning, had to have a congregational interview in the afternoon, I had to preach again at night, and then I had to be voted on by all of you after that. It gave new meaning to being sized up. <laughs> But I want to tell you, uh, I was doing some sizing up of my own, because it not only happens to us, but we all, we all are sizing up. I was sizing you up. I mean, if I'm going to move my, my family halfway across the country to come to a, live in a city I had said for years, I will never live in. And a pastor of church, I wasn't sure I was qualified to pastor. Believe me, I was sizing you up all day. <laughs> And Paul is rather abruptly going to change the subject with the beginning of chapter 10 because he's being sized up. There's a lot of relational tension here between the Corinthian church and especially his plan to make an upcoming trip to visit the Corinthians again. But they've kind of sized him up in some rather negative ways and he's trying to anticipate this and see what he can fix before he gets there. So verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am quote-unquote timid when face-to-face -face with you, but quote-unquote bold towards you, went away. And, and the reason uh, the translators uh, translate timid and bold in quotes is that Paul was quoting his critics. And, and here's what his critics were thinking, verse 10. For some of you say, his, speaking of Paul, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. I mean, ouch. They're saying about Paul, now he can really give it to us when he writes us. Those letters, wow. But, but you know, to be with him, it's like, it's like he doesn't exactly light up a room when he walks in. It's kind of unimpressive. And we think he's full of hot air. All his words kind of mount to nothing. So they had sized Paul up. And I like how the biblical scholar David Garland put it. I'll put it on the screen. He, Paul, makes clear that he's not spoiling for a fight here. He does not want to have to be hard on them when he, he next returns to Corinth. But he does want to remove all doubts about his supposed shortage of courage in face-to-face -face confrontations. So what, what do we do when, when we're being sized up by people around you? If you're in middle school, you're getting sized up by your friends all the time. And often it isn't pretty. That's just the nature of middle school. If you've just taken a supervisor position at work, you're getting sized up by everybody around you who's wondering why they didn't get promoted instead of you. 
And what kind of boss are you going to be? And they're probably not giving you the benefit of the doubt to start out. So what, what do you do when people are sizing you up and you seem to fall short in their eyes? Well, what Paul does here, kind of, in fact, I counted four, four principles that, that, that are just really, really helpful for me and, 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 and I think really criti- mission critical for all of us. And, and first of all, you know, Paul isn't going to start with self-promotion. And sometimes I'm tempted to do that. I mean, what a pre- it's, it's just this awful pressure that comes on us. When, when people size us up and it's not very favorable to, I, I mean, if I've wronged them, I want to ask their forgiveness and things. But, but, but if I just can't win in their eyes, it's, it's tempting to try too hard to prove something about me to them or, or to get into this self-promotion thing or, or even, even powering up on people and, trying to change their mind. Instead, Paul doesn't start there. He starts by replacing self-promotion with spirit dependence. And that's right. He, well, isn't that just kind of spiritualizing everything? You know, this stuff's real. But Paul, Paul starts with spirit dependence, not self-promotion. That's why in the next verse, uh, the second verse of the chapter, he said, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to fight this battle on another level. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to just marshal my self-assertion. I'm not going to power up on you. I, I'm not going to spend my whole time just being defensive that no... I do have a great personality, and what I do say is important. I'm not going to do that stuff. But, but, but he's, he's about to say to us, I'm going to put, my first of all, my reputation in God's hands. He said, I'm not going to do this the world's way. He said, I just believe there's another dimension at work here. It's a spiritual dimension. And I'm going to start by putting my reputation into God's hands. And if you've ever done that, if you just can't seem to change people's minds about you, and and you've just had to surrender your reputation to God, it's a terrible place to be, but it's a wonderful place to be. But it's really hard to say, okay, this reputation of mine I'm guarding so hard. Lord, I'm willing to entrust it to you for you spiritually to do things that I can't do because I can't control people. I can't change people. I, I can influence people. I can sometimes clear up misconceptions. I can, I, I, I can try to clarify what I was really trying to do, but I can't control people. I can't control their emotions. I can't control their opinions. I can't control their decisions. And every time I've crossed the line from influence to control of other people, I've always gotten in trouble, and you're fighting a battle you'll never win. At some point, you just have to to surrender your reputation to God. I mean, we have a wonderful pastoral team here. Thank you for all your encouragement to them this month. But um, I, I've, seen, I've seen them have to do this. You know, we, we sometimes as pastors know things that other people don't know. And we have to make decisions that if you knew what we knew, you'd probably agree with us. But because you don't always know what we know, it's not that we, we don't make mistakes sometimes, but sometimes we just know things that you don't know and so you come in, and as I've had people with me come and talk to me, I can't understand, Pastor, why you did that. I can't believe you'd make a decision like that. And everything inside me wants to defend my reputation to them. But to do it, I would either have to throw somebody else under the bus or I'd have to violate a confidence. And it's those moments where I just have to say, God, my reputation's in your hands. 
Because without throwing somebody on the bus or violating a confidence, there is no way I can make myself look good in, in this person's eyes. And you just, you just surrender. And, and, and in Paul's language here, you are not fighting the way the world fights for your reputation. You're surrendering to God and choosing not to lash out, but instead choosing that way of depending on God's intervention in your life. And so that's why in the next verses, he says, for the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, are they, the spiritual weapons we're fighting with, have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, the Corinthians would have understood exactly what Paul was saying here, because they were living in the heart of the Greek world, and Greek sages and Greek teachers would often describe their, uh, their battle against false ideas and false philosophies as, as a war. And Paul's just picking up on their lingo. And, and, and he says in the next verse, we demolish arguments, so that word could be translated speculation. He said, we demolish speculations and take them prisoner of war. And, and, and that word literally would be used by the Greeks to talk about phys- phil- philosophical reasonings that they disagree with. So they go into these intellectual jousting uh, exercises, trying to get people to turn around. And Paul just picks up on what was really familiar to them and says to the Corinthians, we're kind of in a war. There are philosophical and spiritual reasonings. There's a distortion of truth that is causing you not to go the direction I've been encouraging you to go and truly submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus and not just have things your way. And he said, you're resisting that, and it's like a war of philosophical ideas, and you're resisting it. But he says, I am not stopping, I'm not starting with the worldly weapons to fight this world. I'm not going to power up over you. I'm not going to lash out. I'm not going to try to get even. I'm not going to yell at you and try to outshout you. He said, I am leaning on the God who holds my reputation in his hands and control can control what I, I cannot control. And he says, that's why he says, we demolish arguments, verse 5, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedience to Christ. I'm going to land on, on, on these two feet. Everything Paul says I'm about is that you will be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is not about whether you think I have a great personality or not. This is not about the fact you definitely don't think I'm the best preacher you've ever heard. But Paul said this is all about you submitting to Jesus. And I can't make this happen myself. And I'm not going to treat you improperly just because you don't think very highly of me. But my weapons are in the spiritual dimension And I just believe that somehow we're going to land in the same page on this. And hopefully before I arrive. (laughs) So that's where it starts. You replace self-promotion. God deliver us from just that need to promote ourselves, push ourselves forward. And replace it with his spirit dependence. And And then to... Focus less on image and more on substance. That's where he goes next. Oh, this is a tough one. We live in a culture that's not just absorbed with image, but, I mean, just obsessed with image. But Paul says in verse 7, you are judging by appearances. That's what image is all about. 
If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. Now, I know you're comparing us negatively with other people, and, 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 and you know, it's, it's easy to go, just go on your perceptions of other people, and so many things are driven by image from a distance. But he said, I want, I, I want to let you know, when it comes to substance, we serve Jesus just as much as anybody else. Isn't that amazing? No matter what your image might be, you could honestly say, when it comes down to the substance of my life, I'm, I'm not focused on projecting an image. I'm focused on actually being what I ought to be. The substance of my life is this. We actually follow Jesus ourselves, Paul said. And he's counting on that winning out here. So verse 8, so... Even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord has given us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I'm not going to be ashamed about, uh, of it. I mean, I mean, one thing I know for sure, I'm not going to apologize for it, and I'm not going to brag about it. But one thing I, I, I know for sure, I've renounced the image game, Paul says. And it's what's really substance in my life. Verse 11, so that's why he says in verse 11, such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we're present. I mean, we are trying to live consistently. And we live in a world of smoke and mirrors. We live in, we live in a social media world where you can project any kind of image you want. And, and yet it's all based on the external. And the question is, what's really going on inside of you? Katie Keller in her book, The Ugly History of Beautiful Things, said we act as though what we see in the mirror is complete. Like, that's the whole story. He said, the mirror, but the mirror is only capable of showing what others see. Mirrors reinforce the idea that a person's value lies on the outside of their body that is, and that it's possible to learn our value by examining or even altering our appearance. Your identity had better not be linked to the image you're able to cast to people at a distance. I mean, it'd be, it better be what's really going on in your life. It's substance over image. When I was 35 years old, I left the university church I helped to start at the University of Minnesota, which probably peaked out at 350 people. And I went to Southern California, followed Dr. George Wood, who'd been there 17 years in that church, and it was a pretty challenging first year. But I, I, as I settled in after a couple, three years, I, I, I had a moment where, where it was just like the fear of God in me because this church was so much bigger than 350 people. It was impossible. It was so large. It was impossible to know everybody. And it began to haunt me the thought that some people's impression of me is only from listening me, to me once a week preach a half-hour sermon. And, and what was so terrifying about that, I'm just being honest with you, was I found that I was more than able, it was almost enticing, the ability to, at a distance, project an image of who I am to people who only hear me from a distance once a week. And I, I could project an image that was not accurate to who I really am. I was shocked at how tempting that was and how easy that was. Even to begin, I think I actually stepped across a line. God forgive me. The question, so, 
So it became my life pursuit that it's nice when people like you who get to hear you half hour every week or know you from a distance. But what matters to me is what about the people who are closest to me, who know me? And could I make it a life mission that those who know me the best are the ones who actually respect me the most? Not those whose opinion I can manipulate by projecting an image. And, 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 this, and this is why the litmus question is, is really this. I mean, what do the people who are closest to you really think about you? Well, pastor, people are sizing me up, and, and I don't like what they say, they're saying, and it's hurting my feelings. Well, that's fine. Uh, first of all, you know, approach this in a spirit-driven, not, not, a, not a self-promoting way, but, but then ask yourself. I mean, the important thing is not, not somebody's perception of me. The important thing is what's really going on in my life, and what are those closest to me saying about me, and am I listening Am I listening? You know, Samuel was sent by God to the town of Bethlehem to pick the next king of Israel. All he knew was he was supposed to go to Jesse's house. Jesse had eight boys. This is just like the Lord sometimes, isn't it? He's got eight boys, but I'm not going to tell you till you get there who it is that's going to be the next king. So what did they do? They trot out. The first guy they trot out is the tall, dark, and handsome guy. That's, by the way, has never been my problem. You know, short, fair, and questionable. I mean, I hope that's okay. I wish I was tall, dark, and handsome. They bring out the tall, dark, and handsome guy. And even Samuel gets sucked into this image thing. Even he, the prophet of God, says, surely that's the next king of Israel. Just look at him on the outside. And God just rebukes him and says, first of all, that's not the guy. And second of all, Samuel, I thought you knew better than this. We don't live... We don't size people up by their images. Neither are we to develop our own self-identity around what we think our image is in front of other people. He says, for God does not look on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Every time I read that, it stops me in my tracks. God help me. You're worried about substance, not image in my life. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, in spite of what you think about me, I want you to know that what we'll be when we're with you is exactly the same as in our letters because we're trying to be the real deals here. And then that, of course, when people size you up and, uh, and, and you start working through the image thing, then you get to the comparison thing. And so that's where Paul goes next. Verse 12, we do not stop. And he'll say, stop, just stop comparing yourself to others. Don't do the self-promotion thing. Just rely on the Holy Spirit. Your weapons aren't worldly here. There's a spiritual dimension to this. And, and, and just keep making sure you're doing your homework to focus on substance and not image in your life. But then stop comparing yourself with people. Because this is where the image thing eventually leads us. That temptation to compare. Verse 12, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. This is, that's Paul's polite way of saying, uh, if you're just constantly comparing yourself to other people, man, you must be miserable. <laughs> I mean, I like my wife's analogy. It's like a seesaw. You get on social media. This, by the way, is one of the reasons that depression is so, so closely aligned 
to the number of hours you spend on social media every day. It's because you're seeing people cooking food that you couldn't possibly cook. And you see people dressing up and putting on their best and maybe even photoshopping themselves. And they look so much better than you do. And, and they're talking about the raise they got at work. And they're talking about this and they're talking about that. I mean, it sets you up to constantly compare yourself. And you can spend three hours in social media and it's like you're on a seesaw. And you read one thing and you feel great. And you read something else and you feel terrible about yourself. Why? Because your identity is being determined by by whether you are better than somebody or you are not as good as somebody. And what a terrible way to shape your identity. I mean, God forgive us for only feeling good when we feel better than somebody else. It just keeps us in this image game. And Paul says, if you're living, if you're in that crowd that's always sizing up each other and comparing one to another, he said, you are not a smart person. That's a prescription for depression. We, verse 13, however, we, however, will not boast beyond the proper limits, but we will confine our boasting to the severe of the service God himself has assigned to us, a severe that also includes you. He said, we're not going to apologize for what we've done, but we're not going to compare ourselves. Okay, he says, okay, I'm the one who started your church. Paul's saying this to the Corinthians but you're comparing me with all these other guys. So what, what everybody else does? Maybe they are better preachers than, than, than me. Maybe they aren't. But here's what God called me to do. Here's what I did. And it did go as far as involving you because I started your church. But that's all I worry about. That's why he says in the next verse, verse 14, we are not going too far in our boasting as would be the case if we had not come to you. For we did get as far as to you with the gospel of Christ. In other words, he's starting to say, rather than comparing myself with other people, I'm just going to zero in on what God called me to do. Verse 15, neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. And, and, and sometimes, you know, it's just tempting to take the credit for what other people have accomplished. And he said, I'm not going to do that either. In a nutshell, concentrate on what God has called you to do. People are sizing you up all the time. You'll never change that. You size people up yourself all the time. And sometimes you need to. But, but, but don't focus on self-promotion. Put it into God's hands and then, and then make sure your life is right and, and then stop comparing yourself with others and just focus on what God has asked you to do. I was reading an article this past week out of a book, Faith for Exiles, it was published two years ago, uh, out of research by Kinnaman and Matlock. It's called Five Traits of a Resilient Disciple. And in this book, they were doing research around the question, what does it take to raise children who continue in the faith when they're adults? I started reading their five primary research-based conclusions, and I thought, really, it kind of ties everything, especially the last one, kind of ties everything together. First of all, teenagers who, or 70-year-olds who want to stay in the faith. I know 70-year-olds, their life's becoming overwhelmed with unbelief and doubt. But if you're going to stay in it, you need to have an intimate relationship with Jesus, intimacy with Jesus, because this is a spiritual battle. This isn't you improving your reputation. This starts with the spiritual weaponry. 
intimacy with Jesus. And they practice cultural discernment. In other words, they're not sucked in by the image thing. They understand there's a worldly way and there's a holy way. And they're going to choose holy. And they're smart enough to tell the difference. Cultural discernment, which means they're going to live above just being a slave to everybody's expectation and the image they want people to have of them. And then they practice. They have meaningful spiritual relationships. They're actually, they're, they're actually willing to be known. You know, in a journey where those who know us best ought to respect us the most because we're the real deal, because there's substance even more than there's image in our lives. And he said they're willing to have spiritual relationship, really know and be known. Be known. And they engage in counterculture, counterculture mission. I mean, they can say, like Paul said, here's what we did, not here's what someone else did. And, and, and they're not saying, you know, I don't know that I do this as well as somebody else, or I feel great today because I found out somebody doesn't do it as well as I do. No comparison. They're just on mission. They're just on mission. And they have a sense of calling in their life and work. They just have a sense that I'm called to do this. Look, if you're in middle school and you belong to Jesus, uh, you're not just going to middle school tomorrow morning. You're sent by God as his person to middle school. You're sent by him. Every piece of your life, you're on mission. You're called by God. I mean, if you're going to work, you in fact... We always use that language, but I believe theologically we don't say we're going to work. We're sent to work because we have a sense of calling in our life and work. We're sent to be great doctors and nurses. We're sent to be great business administrators. We're sent to be great teachers in Jesus' name. We're sent to be great pastors and missionaries. We're sent to, to caretake. You know, I don't feel like I have much value in my life. All my life is just caregiving for my aging parents. And you know what? You're just not obligated to care for your aging parents. You're God's gift to your aging parents. You're on a mission. The world may not value it, and, and, you, and people may be sizing you up and saying, well, they're not accomplishing much. But you are doing what God has called you, and every obligation, every duty, and even every choice in your life turns into an assignment from God. They have a sense of calling in their life and work. What depressed me about this article was they were saying statistically only 10% of Christian teenagers actually live this way. I think that's much higher in our congregation. But whether you're a teenager and you're in your 90s, it doesn't matter. Everything you will do for the rest of this day, you can turn. It's not a I have to. It's not an I should. It's I am chosen by God to be God's person in this situation right now. And this is how you live. And when you're tempted to compare yourself with other people, you just come back to this one thing. What is it that God's put in my hand today to do? If you're under 40, you may well not know what all God has for you yet. And if you're over 40, you may be worrying you've missed what God has for you. But take heart. Don't compare yourself with people who are more successful or less successful. Don't compare yourself with kids who got higher grades or lower grades. What has God put in your hand today? Use what he's given you today and he can take care of tomorrow. Just be on assignment from him today. And especially when you're tempted to start comparing yourself to other people, you've got to just stop and say this to yourself. I'm comparing myself with no one. Apostle Paul said, I'm stupid if I do that. 
Instead, God, what have you put in my hand to do right now? So he says, first of all, I've made this a spiritual thing. I'm not going to resort to powering up on people or promoting or trying to change people's minds. I first of all put this in the spiritual dimension, spiritual weapons and faith and prayer and the word of God, staying rooted in those things. I'm trusting that. And, and I'm not going to be about the image I can cast to other people. I'm going to be about what God's really doing in my life. I'm, I'm about substance over image. And I, I'm going to stop comparing myself to other people. And that leaves us with the last verse of chapter 10, which is an altar call verse if I've ever seen one. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. What of God's approval was the final word over our lives? Isn't that an amazing verse? He's saying, you think I'm a pretty dull person, and I'm full of hot air. I mean, that's literally what he tells him, so many words. But he said, big deal. That hurts my feelings, but it doesn't define my life. Why? I mean, even if I do get contempted to compare myself, and even if I do get too worried about my image, and get my, the emphasis on the wrong syllable in my life. There's only one person whose opinion matters in the end. And you're going to stand before him face to face. So I'm going to live for the approval of only one person. And I'm not going to be a slave to whether people like me or not. I'm going to treat people well. I'm going to do my homework. I'm going to be the real deal. If I've hurt people, I'm going to forgive, ask their forgiveness. I'm going to make things right. If I have to explain some things, I'll explain them. But in the end, I'm only worrying about one person's approval. And it's no human being you'll meet this week. It's him. So will you stand with me, please? <laughs>